you will, to Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Whether you're getting there as you turn the pages or you're scrolling on your iPad or your iPhone, I hope that you would uh, find this passage this morning as we study it together. Matthew chapter 5, as we begin in verse 21. A few weeks ago, we began a sermon series entitled Tough Words to Hear. And you know, I was thinking about it this week, that there are a lot of moments in our lives where we hear things that we don't necessarily like to hear. Many times they're for our benefit, but they can be difficult for us to accept. Think about it as a child, as we were growing up. And our mom and our dad said, no, you cannot play in that road, right? You didn't understand why. You were devastated because that road looked so inviting. It was so flat and you could ride your bike there. I mean, it was, but yet you couldn't do it. It was a difficult word for you to accept. And yet it was a necessary word for you to accept. Oh, yeah. You remember when your mom said, no, you cannot have that third piece of lemon icebox pie. You cannot have it. Difficult for you to accept, but reflecting back, you recognize that it was a good thing that she did not let you have that. That way you still enjoy lemon icebox pie today, right? Tough words to hear. My friend, my beloved friend, president of the Louisiana Baptist Convention right now, who is pastor at First Baptist Lafayette, as he heard this morning, Louisiana Tech, 43. <laughs> I'm going to send him a little link to this message, by the way. <laughs> Tough word. Maybe a little closer to home to our pastor in Florida. Never mind, we're not going there. Too much pain, too much pain. <laughs> there are tough words for us to hear. Sometimes Jesus will employ tough words, difficult words. Some people have identified them as the hard sayings of Jesus. They seem to be so out of character because they're so to the point and they are sometimes so biting in the way that they appear to us. And yet Jesus uses these tough words to grab our attention and to instruct us. And hopefully, as we hear these words, somehow we benefit and we're drawn closer to him. Now, here in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching. Matthew has this emphasis upon Jesus' teaching. You see it all throughout his gospel. But especially in this extended teaching section we call the Sermon on the Mount. It would be a wonderful study for us to go back and look at one day. But here in the midst of that Sermon on the Mount, in his teaching... He is speaking, he is trying to call his uh, disciples to a greater obedience, to a greater commitment. And here in this passage, he will use some very tough words as it relates to sin and our relationship to what that sin does in our lives. Notice in verse 21, Jesus is speaking and he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now stop there for a moment. Notice what Jesus is saying. He says, you have heard that it was said. Literally, you have heard that it has been written. And it stands written. In other words, you've heard what Moses said and that you are not to murder someone else. He said, you've heard that. You've been taught that. That is accepted and affirmed in the law. But then in verse 22, it says, But I say to you, 
That is an emphatic statement to say that I myself, I am the one now that is saying this to you. I am speaking to you in such a way. Notice Jesus' claim of authority here. He is claiming this authority that had belonged to Moses and to others. To, well, he claimed the authority of God. As he said, I am now saying to you. I'm speaking this word to you. I am giving you the true interpretation. I'm giving you the true law. As the new Moses who has come, he speaks and he says, you've heard it said about murder, but now I say something to you about the anger. And then he goes on to speak about, to speak about these insults, to speak about these words that might be used that reflect the heart. When you're reading through this passage, you'll see the reality of sin underscored. I mean, really, you will see the reality of sin and the radical reality of that sin. Notice he speaks about not only the outward activity, the outward sin, but he speaks about this inward sin. He speaks about the attitude. He says, you know, you're walking along here and you understand that you are not to murder somebody else. You are not to take that physical act of murdering someone else. But what I want to say to you is that that sin penetrates all of your being. In other words, that sin doesn't start just with the action. It starts also with the attitude. And he says you must confront that attitude in your life. So it's not just about living outwardly appropriate, but rather you should live inwardly appropriate before God. That's what he says. That's what he's talking about. Notice he says, if you are angry without a cause, you shall be in danger of the judgment. Verse 22, he also says, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Now get this. He says that if you use the word Raka, now you probably used that this week, right? <laughs> Went around and said, hey, Raka. What does Raka mean? I mean, you're reading this along and it says that if you use that word, that also you're going to have to appear before the council, the Sanhedrin, the, the Supreme Court of Israel. You're going to be called there, even if you use that kind of word. Don't forget that. Well, Raka was this Aramaic type of slang. And it meant something like, get this, it meant something like empty-headed one. Literally, that's what it meant. It meant something like blockhead. You don't see much agreement in some of the uh, commentators about what these words mean, but almost all agree that this word means like blockhead. So he says, if you go up to somebody and you're referring to them as an empty-headed one or a blockhead, you have fallen short of the glory of God. So not just that you've murdered or that you think about murder, but you should think about the way you refer to other people and the way you see other individuals. Then he calls attention to it with this second example that he gives. He says, But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. He says, And if you use this idea of fool. Now, when I was in high school, I had a dear friend played on the football team and just a wonderful guy. 
he was really a committed believer, but at one point in his life, he began to use some salty language. He's kind of turned back away from that, but he was using some salty language. And uh, I had heard him do this a time or two. And then one day we were talking and I think maybe on television, somebody used the word fool. And he said to him, he said out loud to me, he said, man, did you realize that guy right there is going to hell? I said, what? What do you mean by that? And he said, well, he just used the word fool. And the scripture says, if you use the word fool, you're going to hell. I was like, man, do you know what you've been saying here lately? Yeah, but I'm not saying the word fool. I mean, he did. We had this conversation. I said, yeah, you know, I think you missed the point of what Jesus was trying to say in verse 22. Jesus was not trying to be so literal that he said, if you use this one certain word, you're in trouble. That's not what he's saying. What Jesus is trying to emphasize is the radical reality of sin and how it penetrates not just the outward activities, but how it penetrates our inward attitudes. Because look, sin is not just an external activity. Sin is also an internal attitude in our lives. Sin is not just something that can be outwardly in appearance. It can be inwardly in the way it attacks us, in the way it tries to conform us. Because notice what Jesus is saying. He said, you're worried about just that act of murder. But what I'm saying to you is that there is an issue of attitude here in the way you look at your fellow human being your fellow brother or sister. He says there's an issue there. This word fool, in the Greek, it is the word moros, which we get the word moron from, right? Again, it literally means worthless one. Worthless one. What Jesus says is if you have this attitude toward your brother that he is totally worthless, that he has no value before God, that he has no value before anybody else, he says, I want you to know that in that case, you are in danger of judgment itself. You have to look at that attitude that you have. And notice the action often follows the attitude. In other words, if you are going to commit the act of murder, you pretty much have to say that that individual that you're going to kill, that that individual is worthless, right? At some point in your reasoning, at some point in your mind, you have determined that that individual is worth nothing before God and before you and before the community itself. You might say that you've embraced the attitude that Jesus is rejecting here. You see, sin affects us, and it affects not only our activities, but it affects our attitudes. One example that Jesus gives is in regard to murder. Notice in verse 27. We're going to come back to the verses above in a moment, but look at verse 27. Jesus uses the same formula. He says, you have heard that it was said or that it has been written or that it stands by those of old. You shall not commit adultery. So again, he talks about the external act of adultery. 
And then he says in verse 28, But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So notice again, he says it's not just about the physical act. He says it is about the attitude. It is about lust itself. And here in this passage, the idea is that you go on looking. It is in that present tense, verse 28. But I say to you that whoever goes on looking, it, it is a state of being. It is a state of attitude. And it is a continuous state. Love the way Billy Graham said this one time. Billy Graham said, it's not the first look that gets you in trouble. It's the second. And the third. And the fourth. It is dwelling upon that desire in your life. So again, notice how Jesus is upping the standards. Notice how he is calling for greater obedience. Notice how he is underscoring the radical reality of sin, how it affects not just our physical activities, but how it affects our internal attitudes. He says, we must recognize that sin affects us and it goes far beyond what many of us can even comprehend. Verse 20, I didn't read this earlier, but I'd like for you to look back at chapter 5, verse 20. I think this is the key verse of the Sermon on the Mount, by the way. If you were to star a passage in your Bible or maybe highlight it there on your iPad or iPhone, I, I would say this is the key verse of the whole Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what it, Jesus said. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, for us today, we would look at that and we would have no problem with the idea of our righteousness exceeding that of the Pharisees and scribes. We have no, we have no problem with Jesus saying that to us because for us, the Pharisees have such a negative connotation and the scribes were enemies of Christ, it seemed, in the passages that we read. So for us to, reject, to say, hey, righteousness has got to be greater than theirs, we'd be okay with that. Try to listen to that verse, that statement by Jesus in the first century world, especially in the Jewish culture. Think back a moment. Because the Pharisees were some of the most godly, outwardly people that you would see in the culture. I mean, I mean they were good people, outwardly speaking. I know Jesus had all kinds of things to say about them. But the community and the culture would have esteemed them as the churchiest, greatest people you could ever imagine. That they did so many things. I mean, they would, look, they would fast so many times a week. They would tithe. They would, they would do all the things externally that you could think of that would demonstrate religious piety and practice. So you're a disciple, you're sitting here, you're listening to Jesus speak. And Jesus says, hey, 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 unless your righteousness, good deeds, all the things that go with it, unless that righteousness goes way beyond that of the Pharisees and the scribes, 
you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to say to you that many of us would have said, well, we need to check out right now. Because there, there's never a way that we're going to be better than the Pharisees. There's, I mean, if we're hearing it as a first century uh, audience, a Jewish audience, we would have probably said, there's no way. So what did Jesus mean by this? Well, I think verse 21 that we read a moment ago, and as we continued on, you see how Jesus is trying to show them what true righteousness is and how it goes beyond the external, right? The Pharisees were simply, well, they were simply satisfied that their deeds and their goodness, well, that it was good on the outside and that everybody could see it. They were, they were somewhat satisfied with that. And Jesus was like, you've got to have a new concept of what righteousness really is. You've got to have a new concept of what sin really is. You are not righteous simply because you look righteous before the community. You are not righteous just because you've done a few good things outwardly. You can go around boasting, oh, I'm not a murderer. I'm not an adulterer. But Jesus said, if you've had this attitude of hatred and anger, if you've had this attitude where you have diminished the life of someone else, if you've had the attitude of looking upon a woman and you have dwelled in that sense of lust, he said, you have broken the law as well. That's the reason last week when I was preaching. Remember that sermon? Awesome message, right? Go listen to it again. This reason last week I said that all of us in this place, every one of us, every one of us could be charged as murderers and adulterers and idolaters. All of us could because we have broken the law. If we've broken it in one area, we've broken the whole law. And if we've had sinful attitudes, even though we may not have carried out the action, my friend, we are still sinful before a holy God. And Jesus says, your concept of righteousness, it must go far beyond that of the Pharisees and the scribes. And ultimately, we know, ultimately, we know that thanks be to Christ Jesus and his salvation that he provided on the cross, that when we stand before a holy God, we stand before him clothed with the righteousness of the Savior himself. Because we recognized it wasn't just the external, but it was the internal that needed to be changed. So Jesus says that there's a radical reality of sin itself. It penetrates everything about us. It's about our attitudes as much as it is about our actions. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he admonished his followers to avoid not only, not only the violence of deeds but the violence of, of the Spirit itself in the way you did things. And for us, we need to make sure that we are not just avoiding the outward external sin, but we ought to be radically trying to eliminate the internal attitudes that lead to sin, that are sinful themselves. Jesus speaks about the radical reality but he also speaks about the radical result of our sin. 
Don't miss this. I'm afraid too often we have avoided this in our churches today. But what Jesus says in his own words is that our sin has radical results, consequences upon others' lives and upon ours. Now, certainly, upon others' lives, you can recognize this. It is implicit here to be able to murder someone else or to determine that they are worthless. Think about the harm that comes to them, the natural harm. Adultery itself, think about how it destroys relationships. So we know that sin will bring harm to others. But in this passage, Jesus in particular brings attention to the harm it brings to ourselves. Listen at that strong language. He speaks about judgment. He speaks about the severe consequences that come because we embrace such attitudes in our lives. We must not forget in our contemporary and modern day churches today, we must not forget that sin leads us into hostile areas with God. That sin leads us into death and judgment itself. The wages of sin, that is, that which we produce because of our sin, that which we are owed because of our sin, it produces what? Death. The wages of sin is death. And there's a judgment that comes. There's a judgment for our sins. And that, I think, is what Jesus is underscoring again here. To remind us of the drastic results in our lives. We don't want to hear these kinds of things today. And they are tough words to say. They are tough words to hear. And let me say to you that none of us should ever speak about the judgment of God in a, in a glib way or even... Or even with a smile on our face, I don't think we should say that because we should so be so burdened for individuals. We should be so broken for individuals that are under the judgment of God, that are facing this type of judgment, that we should be concerned and burdened in our hearts and in our lives. He uses strong language talks about being in danger of hellfire. Later on, as we'll look at the verses 29 through 30 or so, he'll speak about this idea of, of this judgment, this hell that is to come. Now, the wording that is used by Jesus would bring up these natural images that were there in Jerusalem. The word that's used here is the idea of Gehenna. Literally, we speak about the Valley of Hinnom. If you were to be there in Jerusalem, you were to look south into the valley. You'd find an area. Well, some years before, this area had been used for idol sacrifice to the god Molech. And people would, they would come and they would offer sacrifices through fire there in that valley. After the, after the Jews returned from Babylon, in order to demonstrate their, uh, 
their contempt for this place. In order to desecrate this place even more, what they did is they made it a rubbish site, a dump. And what they would do is they would take their garbage, dry and wet kind of garbage, and they would take it out there and they would burn it. And constantly, constantly, there would be something that would be burning there in that valley. It was a hideous, tragic-looking area. Now, that is one of the images that Jesus uses here to just speak about the seriousness of sin itself, the radical results and what it does to us. And oh, how sin will destroy us, will it not? It will destroy us. It will destroy us. And Jesus reminds his listeners there that day, not only about the radical reality of it, how it penetrates all of our being, but the radical results of it. And then he calls for a radical rejection of sin. Notice verses 23 through 26. We're not going to really investigate those too much. I just want to mention those this morning. Verses 23 through 26 speak about this radical rejection of sin. That is, as it speaks in context of having an issue with your brother or determining that he is worthless, he basically says... You ought to reconcile and restore and get some things right because they are made in the image of God. That's basically what he says here. He also says for that one, which is even considered to be your adversary, he says you ought to go and settle things. Do as much as you can. Remember, we're told to live peaceably with individuals as much as we can, as much as it depends upon us. So that in itself is a radical rejection of sin and embracing God and his relationships. I mean... That's incredible. But then perhaps when you read verse 29 and, and 30, you see this radical rejection demonstrated by Jesus as he talks about confronting that sin that is there. He, notice verse 29. You want to talk about tough words? Listen to this. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast in hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you. It is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, that's strong language from Jesus. It speaks about plucking out your eye, cutting off your hand. Now listen, everybody... A couple of you have been asleep. Wake up just for this one, okay? I see that section over there. <laughs> Jesus was not speaking in literal physical terms here, okay? Now, some of you look at me and say, oh, yeah, 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 I think it No, you don't think he was, or otherwise you'd be walking around blind right now, right? <laughs> don't you? No, don't you start with me. Jesus was not speaking. He was not calling for any type of self-mutilation. That's not what he's calling for here, okay? What he's, what he's wanting people to do is to see, again, the radical reality of sin and the radical result of sin. But then what he wants to do is call them to radically reject sin. Radically remove it, reject it from their lives. The hand is not the problem. 
The eye is not necessarily the problem. Okay, I'm going to create something here. And I know as a preacher I shouldn't do this. It's been a good message. I could have rated this one in the top ten. Maybe I shouldn't do this here at this point. But I'm just going to say it, okay? And I'm not trying... Listen to me. I'm not trying to make a political statement here. You may think I am, but I'm just telling you. When we see massacres like we saw this last week, it is not about a gun. Just as it is not about a hand. And it's not about an eye. My friends, the reason we see what we do today is because of the radical nature of sin itself and what it is doing to the hearts and lives of people in our country. It is the sin that is impacting us and that is creating a hatred for our fellow brothers. Again, I do not minimize good laws. I do not minimize mental health and those issues that are surrounding that. But my friends, do we not understand that the root cause is much deeper and it is much more severe than we would like to admit? It is because we have determined that people are worthless. That there is no sanctity of life and humanity anymore in our culture. But even with that, my friends... We should recognize that all of us in this place, every one of us, fall short of the glory of God. And that every one of us have weaknesses in our lives. And every one of us, well, if we're not careful, we can allow sin to just consume us. And that is the reason, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of Christ in our lives, we must radically reject sin. Yes, there are things in our lives, some common sense things that we should do personally. Maybe it means severing an ungodly relationship. That's pretty radical. My friends, if it is an ungodly relationship you are in, it is best for you to sever that relationship than for you to come into conflict with God himself. This is, going to sound, this is going to sound radical, but I believe that sometimes God wants us to remove ourselves from certain contexts that are ungodly. Certain context. Could be a, a job. It could be a circle of friends. It could be a party that I'm going to. Whatever it is that is going to lead us to an attitude of sin, to just simply sever ourselves from those. Remember what Paul told us? To flee, to get away, to just remove ourselves. And here Jesus says, you've got to radically fight back and oppose this sinful attitude these sinful actions that will destroy you. Now listen. I want to make sure you hear this. Thanks be to God, we don't do that on our own. Because I'm going to tell you, you and I could never achieve victory over sin itself. We never could. Over sinful 
attitudes and addictions. We can't do that. But as the power of the Holy Spirit works in us and through us, as the Spirit of Christ comes out of us, we can reject those things. And look at the positive side of this. I mean, I understand Jesus speaks of the negative, but think of the positive. As we reject, as we reject this radical sin that is in our lives, as we turn to Him, we don't have to talk about this idea of perishing. We can talk about this idea of living. We don't have to talk about this idea of separation. We can talk about this idea of relationship. We don't have to talk about isolation. But we can talk about the love of God in our lives. Because see, as you reject those sinful attitudes and actions in your lives, as I reject those sinful actions and attitudes in my life, I'm able to see more clearly and to embrace that relationship that I have with Jesus Christ more fully. And what a great and awesome moment that is in my life and in yours. You see, these are tough words, Jesus has to say. They really are. But yet, he takes those words and he uses them in such strong ways to drive us to a closer commitment and love for him. Just as the good father instructs his children in the right way so that he might experience a relationship with them, so God, speaking through his only son, Jesus, instructs us so that we might come back and enjoy the loving relationship that God has for us. Today in this place, I pray that we have seen the radical reality and the radical result. But I pray during this moment of reflection and invitation that we will radically reject sin, its attitudes, and its influence upon our lives through the power of the Spirit, through the work of Christ who has given us freedom and life. Let's pray. Father, we do pause before you this morning. We praise you. We thank you. You are our God, are our, our God and we are so thankful for the relationship you brought us into. God, we're thankful that you speak to us truthfully and clearly. Honestly, Lord, you just address these issues in our lives so that we can have a greater relationship with you. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this place this morning. Lord, I pray for those of us that have reduced our walk with you to just the external activities. And Lord, we've forgotten the internal attitude and effect that it has upon our lives. God, I pray this morning we'd come and confess our sins to you. I pray that whatever it takes, Lord, that we would radically eliminate, remove these moments, these areas, Father, from our lives that are displeasing to you. 
May you find us as a church that is truly ready for your return. We pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we've had this moment of invitation?